Hey everybody, welcome to Skeleton Keys. I'm Tori Yatesor. And I'm John Booker. And together we're going to try to unlock the mysteries of mythology and history in pop culture. And today we are going to talk about the mystery of mysteries. The one thing that touches every single one of us. We're going to talk about death. Dun, dun, dun. Dun. (laughs) (laughs) But it doesn't have to be the dun, dun, dun. Yeah. In so many in so many ways, it's just on to the next one. Now, Tori, that is a very advanced view of consciousness. I love that you have this confidence. I Not don't. All of us do. So, how do you look at death without just freaking out? Oh, I super freak out about it all the time. <laughs> Literally all the time. Just like, oh god, it's coming. Um. <laughs> But what's really been helpful for me is that just in my own spiritual practice, I practice a lot of ancestral veneration, Mm. kind of getting in touch with the energies of the people in my family that have passed on. Mm. So in that way, I'm not as scared about it because it's Mm -hmm. more of like, all right, it's just another journey. Mm. And so even if it is final and like, it's just like someone pulls the plug, that's still a journey. If it isn't in an afterlife, it's the best sleep you're ever going to get. Mm. So I just think it freaks me out. Yeah. I mean, all the time. And I think more so it freaks me out about losing the ones that I love. That's more yeah. of the fear, more so than me. Yeah. How do you feel about it? You know, I think you express this well. I, as far as my own mortality, you know, I heard something when I, you know, was in college that has always stuck with me in that human beings are the only creatures on earth that are aware that they will die. And a grand number of the decisions we make on life, what we do in this world and in our lives are motivated and based out of that realization that we will die. And so I think it depends on what day you ask me. On some days, I feel very zen about the whole thing. And I feel very ready for whatever, you know, approaches. I also feel like my attitude and ideas about death greatly stream out of my ideas and attitude about life. Mm. And that is this. Tori, I grew up in this small town in East Texas. And my biggest dream was to work for the tire factory at the edge of town. And I thought maybe one day if I worked there long enough, I could get enough money to maybe buy a car and a house. And that might just be enough to put me over the edge where some woman would want to marry me. And then that would just be as good as it gets in life. That would be everything. So the fact that I live and work in Hollywood and get to do all these amazing things that I get to do, I'm already today finishing so far ahead of what where I thought I would be in life and what I thought the best in life would be that if I walk out of my house and get hit by a bus today, I'm already finishing so far ahead of where I thought I'd go that I guess I'm okay with it because, you know, my attitude about death is I already at this point have lived a life well. Mm -hmm. I've lived life well. I have experienced life. I have tasted the fruits of life in a way that I'm okay with whatever might lie beyond. That's on my best days. 
on my <laughs> not so best, best day. <laughs> yeah, on my not so best days, I am hiding under the covers, chattering my teeth, biting my nails. You know, it, it really depends on which day you catch me. But I, I will say this: uh, death is a lot harder for me to reconcile and deal with when I think about others and those that mm-hmm. I love than it is for myself. Like yeah. you. That's the real scary thing is losing people that I love. That's that's hard to process. Yeah. I think weird way, like grief is almost scarier than death. Yeah. Because you're not, I mean, like you're gone. Right. Like once you die, you're just like, right. all right, peace. It's the people who remain who will suffer. Yeah. Who are going to, you know, be brokenhearted. Yeah. As cliche as this sounds, in WandaVision, there was a great line where they said, what is grief if not love persevering? Mm, and I was wow. like, that is exactly what that is. Yeah. I was like, okay, WandaVision. Yeah. But I do, I think it's more, I I think I fear more losing the people I love Yeah. than yeah. me going. I remember the first funeral I ever attended mm. when I uh, was a boy and my grandfather died and I was scared to death to go to the funeral because I did not want to see my grandfather's body. And I remember my father pulling me aside and saying to me, John, the funeral is not for the dead. The funeral Mm. is for the living. The funeral is for those of us that remain. This thing that you're going to, your your grandfather's not going to be there. He's not there. Yeah, his body will be there, but he's he's not there. This is for us. And it's funny, but that one nuanced clarification actually made a huge difference for me. And and it changed the way that, you know, unfortunately, I've been to a lot of funerals since then. Um, But it it changed everything for me, that one piece of advice that was given to me um, in going to my very first funeral. That's powerful. Yeah, yeah. To And to carry that with you and to understand that. Yeah. Of, you know, because I, I think funerals are so different for so yeah. many different cultures. In African-American culture, we call it a homegoing. Yeah. We always ask who did the body, which yeah. has always been weird to me. That's kind of how I have always felt about it. Mm-hmm. Of like weird. I have I've always had a very deep fear of dead bodies. Yeah. Like I just don't want yeah. to be near a dead body ever. Yeah. I think I would be a great detective if I didn't have to look at dead bodies. <laughs> um, I was like, can you draw me a picture of what happened? <laughs> anyway. But I think it's because I, even from a young age, inherently knew that wasn't them. Yeah. That like that's not that's not a person. That's yeah. just a, that's just a structure. Yeah. And so I think that is interesting, especially because in so much of history, so much is put on preparing the body for whatever comes next. Like that's a big part of how we approach death from the Egyptians to, to the Vikings to like the Aborigines in Australia. So much is how do we prepare this body for wherever it's going, if it's the next life or, you know, crossing the river Styx. Or so in the Jewish always, tradition where they don't prepare the body, you know, the body is buried mm-hmm. the same day in places like Israel. So sometimes there's there's the complete lack of preparation of the body. And I kind of resonate more with that, of mm. more of like, okay, they're gone. Yeah. Like, yeah. They, they're not going to need to be in like their best suit and have their wig looking yeah. right. They don't care. Yeah. Like, that, it's, it's interesting 
because especially because like the history that I love, I loved Egyptian history and Egy- ancient Egyptian history is basically sur- like revolves around death. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Almost everything we know about ancient Egypt is about death. And so it was always kind of weird where I was always deeply afraid of these bodies, <laughs> but yeah. all the history I liked kind of venerated the body before it went on. That makes yeah. any sense. Yeah, no, it makes total sense. And, you know, you talking about the the mythological aspects of death, uh, you know, it reminds me of how many mythologies, they personify death. Death mm-hmm. is not just a condition or the absence of life or, or the departure to another place, but death is a literal figure in most mythologies. It's a... Um, it's represented, it's characterized in, you know, ancient Greece, death was, you know, Thanatos, which Marvel very <laughs> wisely, you know, created a character Thanos, you know, which is is death. And But Thanatos, you know, was one of the twin sons of Nyx, you know, which meant night. And like Nyx, you know, death was not often portrayed directly, although when he did appear, and at least he appeared in art sometimes as, as a winged and bearded man, and occasionally as a young person, as a youth that was winged and bearded. And sometimes actually in some mythological art would appear with his twin brother, Hypnos, the god of sleep. But Thanatos, you know, generally represented a, a gentle death, not a, a violent death or not something scary. Thanatos was not like the the Grim Reaper. It wasn't this scary character or figure, but you know he he often would. He was a psychopomp. He would he would take the dead to the shore of the River Styx, you know, where Chiron would take the payment and uh, take the person to Hades, the realm of the dead. But we get religion mixed in with a lot of these things. And you know, Joseph Campbell said religion is you know, or mythology is basically other people's religion. So uh, if we put all religions under the categorization of mythology, we see a lot of different takes on death and, and what happens in the afterlife. You know, in Norse mythology, death is personified in the shape of Hel, H-E-L, who's the goddess of death and ruler of the, the, the realm. And she would receive a portion of the dead. And so there's often, you know, this characterization of death that we look at as the Grim Reaper, but that character and that personification of death appears throughout mythological traditions all over the world. Why do you, do you think it's because it's our way of trying to get a handle on it? So to make it a person or to make it a, a creature or something that can be contained? Yeah. I think that's a big part of it. I mean, death is a universal, you know, the, every culture deals with it. Every person experiences it. And I think mythology is created in order to explain the unexplainable of the world. Uh, then, yeah, death is going to be very high in the priorities of what mythology is meant to do, which is why, you know, in Islam, we've got the archangel Azrael, uh, who's an angel of death. Um, in Hinduism, the Lord of Death, King Yama. In Christianity, one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse is portrayed as death. And, and then in, you know, uh, Latin American cultures, we we have a whole different appreciation of death. You know, the, the Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead in Mexico, which is 
greatly celebrated here in California with Mexican people that live here have brought that wonderful gift of that mythological tradition to the culture of California. So I know a lot of Caucasians who participate and celebrate in that that mythological tradition, but I think it's probably universal. What about you know, in your community, Tori, what celebrations of death do you see or is death celebrated? Um, I think it is in a weird way. Mm. Like I said, a lot of times African-Americans will refer to a funeral as a home going. Yeah. So it's just like, oh, they went home. Mm. Like we see it as a returning. Like we've been there before. We're just going back into the energy. And I think yeah. too, like we African-Americans brought a lot over from the native religions we had before we were enslaved. So you see that in terms of almost like a celebration of death and to going home. So you see that, especially like, I think most well-known is probably the funerals in New Orleans, which are a party, which are a celebration. It's not a mourning of the life, it's a celebration of life. And I think there's there's a power in that, of being like, don't mourn me, like just celebrate me. I was here, I existed. So I think for my culture, that's always kind of been how I approached it. I know like even in our family, we're like, please do not ha- dress all in black and be mourning. They're like, please just tell like funny stories about me and dress in my favorite colors. And there's almost like a lightness yeah. to it. Yeah. And maybe that's a coping mechanism for still not knowing, but yeah. it's almost felt like, okay, they're going home. Or especially if one is sick, oh, well, at least they're free. Yeah, yeah. And that's always been a part of it. And I think too, especially, it's gonna sound very like hippy dippy. <laughs> but in my family, like my aunt remembers her past lives, <laughs> like remembers dying in her past life. I was just never raised with this is the end. Yeah. Yeah. So that's been helpful and scary at the yeah. same time. Yeah. I'm like, so it's not the end, but what's on the other side? Yeah. No, that's really interesting. I, I was raised, you know, in the in the Christian tradition, you know, that believes that, uh, you know, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you go to heaven and you spend eternity in heaven. And like many people that are raised in the Christian tradition, this begs as many questions as it answers. Mm-hmm. You know, in some ways, we think, oh, we just want an answer to the unknown of the afterlife. I, I don't know if that's the best idea either. In some ways, I, I think it's almost better that we don't know. It's interesting how death and judgment have been connected. Mm-hmm. How it's in so many cultures, it's like when you die, you'll be judged. Because yeah. that's not in every culture. Yeah. Like yeah. a lot of times they're like, all right, yeah, it's just a continuation of the same life that you're living in. And there's no judgment factor. But you, you see that with like, are you going to go to heaven or hell? Yeah. Or in Egyptian mythology, weighing the, your life against the feather of Mott. Yeah. And so I think in a weird way, and this might sound strange, it puts even more pressure on death. Yeah. Of like, yeah. I'm terrified and now I have to be judged. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, I don't know if it's the best way of approaching death, but yeah. like you see a lot, historically, I was looking into the concept of hell. Yeah. And you see it pop up specifically in the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. And I, my theory is because they were dealing with a lot of death. Yeah. And they were dealing with feudalism at the same time. So it's like, we have to create a hierarchy even in the afterlife. <laughs> because we've got a hierarchy here, but so many people are dying. They need to know, well, you better do good here or there's yeah. still a hierarchy in the afterlife. Yeah. Well, and you're exactly right. So much of our ideas about death and hell 
come from the fiction that has been mm-hmm. produced in the world. Uh, so, you know, I, I think about uh, Dante and, you know, specifically uh, Dante's Inferno. The work of Dante has greatly painted how we see the afterlife, how we see hell, how we see the devil. So many of these things that we just accept as being part of the Western tradition and, oh, it's been this way forever. No, these are actually fairly recent developments in our ideas about death and the afterlife. You know, these things have changed a lot throughout history. I do think our early experiences with death as children, Mm -hmm. often they impact us for the rest of our life, you know, whether that's stepping on a bug or or seeing a dog run over, you know, or having to go to a funeral. Mm -hmm. And this brings us to our first skeleton key of the episode. In every episode, Tori and I like to share with you a skeleton from our closet, something from our past that maybe not our finest moment. And um, Tori, when I was in the sixth grade, I was so excited because our sixth grade biology class was going to take a trip to Houston to go see the famous Dr. Michael DeBakey perform open heart surgery. And this was a big deal. Dr. DeBakey pioneered uh, open heart surgery in the United States, and the, there was a, a obs- observation dome over the surgical place, and we got to stand and watch this. Now, looking back on it, this was a lot for sixth grade biology. I was about to say, I'm like, do you mean like your senior year biology class? No, 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 no. This was middle school. Uh, they thought what? we were, you know, up for watching open heart surgery, and I'll, I'll never forget watching them put the clamps in and break the breastbone and pull the pull the chest apart, and it, it was a lot. However, on this trip to see Dr. DeBakey uh, perform open heart surgery, they also at the hospital said, we're going to take you down for a special treat after the open heart surgery, and we're going to take you down and show you where the medical students are working with cadavers. These are people that have been that have donated their body to science. And I was mortified. It was already a lot to think about witnessing open heart surgery, but to know now we're going to go look at dead people. I was just trembling. Oh my God. I was just trembling. So <laughs> I'm I, terrified for you. <laughs> yeah. I, after the open heart surgery, I went with the rest of the class down to, you know, this room in the, uh, the, the lower part of the, the medical center and one of the medical students rolled out a gurney that had a white sheet on it, and they pulled the sheet right off, and there was this old woman that uh, was completely nude that looked like her, you know, she had been soaked in formaldehyde or something for a long period. And it was one of the most disturbing things I've ever seen in my life. And they started talking about, you know, you know, that this woman believed in science. And so she had donated her body to science. And we noticed that the old woman had her fingernails painted this odd color. And the medical student said, yeah, sometimes we get bored and we paint their fingernails. I was so mortified by this and so shocked by this that um, I I, I thought I was going to pass out. I thought I was going to pass out. And so there was, before I could raise my hand, the girl standing next to me raised her hand. She said, I think I'm going to pass out. And (laughs) the teacher ended up taking me and this little girl standing next to me outside in the hallway so we wouldn't pass out seeing the, uh, the cadaver in there. 
And it's the one time I've almost fainted at the presence of death was in the sixth grade when I unexpectedly had to deal with seeing the cadaver of this old woman who had donated her body to science, who I'm so glad people do that. I'm so glad that we we learned through that. Shout out to you. But yeah, this was a a mortifying experience for me. Because that wasn't like being in the presence of death. That was like, let's put death right in front of your face. Yes. That's terrifying. That's my worst nightmare. Oh, it was it was the worst. As an adult woman, it was the worst. let alone as a sixth grader. <laughs> How about you, Tori? What uh, what did you bring out of the closet today? Mine is with also a dead body. My grandmother passed. We went to the funeral in Detroit, and you know you have the funeral procession where you get to walk next to the body to look at the body. And I refused to go to the mm. body. I was just like, no, I'm not going. I think I was probably like nine. <laughs> <laughs> and my dad, it was his mom who had passed. He was just livid. He thought I was being so disrespectful. My reason for not going was my grandmother was like lily white. She was African-American, but like had snow white's skin tone, basically. She was mixed race. But her body was darker than me. <laughs> they had painted her like the makeup was just wrong. And so I just kept being like, oh. That's I don't want to go see her. That's not her. Yeah. But I was still trying hard to grasp what death was. Yeah. So my mom, God bless her, she's like, I'll explain death to you. And she goes, you know when you have a juice box? <laughs> and, you, and I was like, yeah. And she goes, when you finish the juice box, like the juice is what you want, right? And I was like, yeah, I love orange, like high C. She's like, do you keep the juice box after you're done with it? And I was like, no. She's like, your body's your juice box. <laughs> I love your mom so much. That is an amazing explanation. And that's literally how I view death now. <laughs> Where I'm like, you don't need the juice box after you're done with it. <laughs> and it really helped me. Like, in turns, she was like, because she made me feel better about, like, she's like, you don't need to go see the juice box. She's like, don't feel bad about that. Like, she was very calm and classy yeah. about it. But then she was like, your body's your juice box. And if you're done with the juice... Do you really need the box anymore? I love that so, so much. I will never. That's how I never, that's how learned death. I'll never see death the same way. That's amazing. <laughs> right? <laughs> and it really helped me. And like, it gave me, I think she also gave me just an excuse of why I was terrified of dead bodies. <laughs> I don't want to see juice boxes. Use juice boxes. So. I'll also never drink another <laughs> juice box without thinking about death. That's amazing. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Have fun with your Capri Suns, guys. <laughs> Amazing. Just made it real morbid for you. <laughs> Isn't it interesting, though, how our individual and our cultural experiences with death can be so varied and be so different? You know, I, in growing up in the South, it was not uncommon at a Southern funeral to see someone run up and and hug and grab the body out of the casket. It was not uncommon to see a casket knocked over because someone was was yeah. pulling the the body, you know, up out of the casket. I when I think about our reactions to the rituals mm. around death, one of my absolute favorite is the Haitian voodoo tradition and it's you know, the Gide family of spirits that embodied both death and fertility. And my favorite character from this Gide family of spirits is Baron Samdi. And Baron Samdi, he's been featured in everything from Scooby-Doo to James Bond movies. Um, the skeleton character with the top hat and the cigar 
And to be honest with you, it's kind of one of the most badass images of, of death ever. He's freaking cool, he's so man. Cool. <laughs> so cool. He's so cool. Baron Samdi is is amazing. <laughs> he's amazing. He's so cool. But it's interesting because, you know, in that Haitian tradition, you you've got this really cool death character, but you've also got, you know, these these Gide spirits that embody death and fertility. What do you think the connection is there between the two? I think certain cultures inherently understand cycles. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's what that is. Because birth and death are the beginning and end, or it could be the end and the beginning of life. We don't know. You know, it's it's interesting. I was reading some article, and it was with someone. I can't remember who it was, but they were basically saying that, oh, birth is way more traumatic than Mm. death. Mm. They're like, you're being ripped out of of someone into this bright light. It's cold. Mm. People are screaming at you. And I think that's why that character, one, we think is so cool. But it's someone who inherently understands that this is a cycle. That this is, like, even if you don't believe in an afterlife, our bodies die. We go back into the earth. Things grow from that earth. That's a cycle. And I think, not like I'm choosing favorites, but that's always been something that's resonated with me in terms of death, of understanding like you're part of this cycle, the cycle of your life, the cycle of the earth's life, the cycle of the universe's life. And so I think that's where that death and fertility come together, creating life, life goes away, or maybe it's the other way around. This is, you know, the idea of agriculture you know, the, mm. the, the, the death and rebirth, the, the cycle of seeds and things of that are, are really where so much of our most ancient mythology comes out of. And the cycle of death and rebirth is, is really the thematic through line of all of mythology. And probably right up through your juice box, because in a sense, you know, that we get a sense that they the juice has gone away and the box is no longer needed. The box can now be recycled, yeah. you know? Yeah. The, I think that's what it is. Because, I mean, honestly, if you think about it, like our lives and death are the greatest hero's journey we can go yeah. on. Like that journey to the underworld, that journey into like what's the next step? You finish you finish your cycle. Yeah. yeah. Like it, there's a weird kind of excitement. Not in terms of like, I'm not trying to die soon, but like in terms of this is unknown, but this is a new journey. Yeah. yeah. Well, in, and I don't need my juice box with me. You don't need your juice box. I love don't that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's one of the reasons that these characters uh, that represent death, whether it be the Grim Reaper or uh, Baron Samdi, whoever it is, these characters are fascinating to me. And I think part of my fascination with these characters that represent death is they are the the symbol of the mystery. The symbol of the mm. mystery that none of us can solve right now, but every one of us will eventually solve. And that is so powerful to me and the symbol of such a universal and profound mythological experience is powerful to me as well. Can you think of any other, you know, symbols of death? I I'm reminded of the skull and the crossbones, you know, that we see on pirates mm-hmm. flags or bottles of poison. That's that's yeah. often a symbol of death. Any others that come to mind for you? You know, it's it's interesting. I never resonated with the skull and crossbones. Because yeah. I, I think in my, in my head, a lot of what death is represented by feels violent mm. to me. Mm. 
or feels like, oh, this is going to be a dark journey yeah. instead of this is just a cycle. Yeah. Like these Ouroboros, that the snake that eats itself, yeah. like that's what I think of it. It's like, all right, we're just going to another cycle. Yeah. So that's always been the image, like the snake that eats itself. Yeah. For me, of death. But it's interesting too, I was talking to someone about this, of how we even associate like color mm. with death. Yeah. How like in Western society, we wear black. Yeah. But in many Eastern societies, they were white. Right. It's just interesting how death resonates with different cultures. Yeah. It, it and how different symbols can be that. You remind me of one of the, the first times I went to China. I, I was walking down the street and outside of someone's home, there was a little pit of fire and they were burning what looked to be money. And I asked mm -hmm. the person that was with me, I said, why, why are they burning money? And they said, well, they said, it's not real money. They go and buy this fake money to burn because they, they've had a death in the family and they are burning this money so that the, the soul that has moved on has this money to spend in the afterlife, you know, so that they, mm -hmm. can, they can buy their way across the river or they can buy what they need in the afterlife. And this goes back to, you know, that Egyptian mythology you were talking about earlier mm -hmm. that pharaohs and kings were often buried with all this treasure, all this gold, all these things that they felt like they would need in the afterlife. It's interesting because there's this disconnect for us that we have trouble accepting that whatever happens after this is probably not going to involve our this particular bodily form anymore. Yep. And yet we can't help but putting things into the coffin of loved ones, uh, even today, for them to take yeah. on to the next world, just like the ancient Egyptians put things in the tombs of the mm -hmm. pharaohs. But we even speak of the dead as though they're still just sleeping or with us. I, I remember seeing a movie when I was a child where a little boy screamed and someone said, what's wrong? And said, ah, oh, that dead person just breathed on me. <laughs> and, you know, that, that's funny to think about. But in a sense, we have some sense the dead still carry a quality of death upon them that can be translated to people. I, I remember one of Eddie Murphy's early uh, stand-up comedy routines talked about when we're children, we will often take a stick and stick it on a dead bird and then chase other children with it and be like, dead bird, <laughs> dead <true>. bird. <laughs> because we feel like that death can somehow be translated from one person to another. Isn't that odd? Well, it's super odd. But I I get yeah. it as someone who's terrified of dead bodies. <laughs> I don't want to touch it. It's it's interesting that we feel that it can be transferred. Yeah. Because like I said, I practice ancestral veneration. Yeah. So I have an altar. I put, you know, water, candies, coffee, yeah. cigars out for, you know, my grandpa who liked cigars. So in a way, they are still around for me. They all they they still feel very present. But I am aware that, that they're not here in their earthly yeah. form. Yeah. Like yeah. their juice box is not here. But it's like I have a deeper understanding of like, yes, they exist. I don't want to physically be near death. Yeah. yeah. And it's that because I think that being physically near it reminds you it's coming. Yeah. Yeah. You can't outrun it. You can't outrun that bird on a stick. Is, Death eventually catches you. It's so funny uh, that you would say that because a year or so ago in my backyard, one day I walked out and a very large black crow had, I don't know if it had somehow stepped wrong on a power line or, or something like that, but oh. 
it was lying dead in my backyard. And it was my job. I'm the only one home. I'm the only one that can deal with this. It was my job to somehow dispose of this dead bird. Now, diseases aside, um, I really tried to think about how am I going to get this dead bird out of my backyard without having to actually touch the dead bird? Because it's yeah. I did not want to touch this dead bird. And, you know, I, I'm a grown man who is trying to find all these methods like like the dead bird on a stick, you know, we just talked about to not have to touch this dead bird. And eventually I, I took a trash bag and, you know, wrapped it around the bird and disposed of the bird, you know, that way. But I, I was amazed even at my own fear and at my own discomfort with even just a, a dead animal in my, my backyard. And, you know, I like animals. I don't want to see animals die, but it wasn't just yeah. the death of an animal. It was the very presence of death, the fact that life mm -hmm. had left this creature recently that that I was now being forced to reconcile with, and it, yeah, I immediately thought of you know that how that animal was probably living just a few moments earlier, and now it wasn't. You know, it's it's yeah. here and now it's gone, which reminds me also of the folkloric practice that we see in some mythologies where people would try and capture the last breath of an animal or a human mm. being. And there were people that collected jars of last breaths. There was something powerful to the, the, the breath of life. Once it was gone mm. out of someone, that, that creature was physically changed, was physically different. Yeah. We try and hold on to that life even if it's in a jar. There's nothing more final. Yeah. There's... There is nothing more final than death. Yeah. Um, I can talk about how I feel that people live on, but I don't know. Yeah. All I know is that they're not here anymore. Yeah. That is for sure. Yeah. So I think anytime we see a dead animal or a dead person, it reminds us, like you were saying, he was probably alive shortly before yeah. that. So it's like in an instant, yeah. I could too be dead in someone's backyard yeah. and they were having picked me up with you know a trash bag. Hopefully not, but not that situation. But like, it just reminds you like, this is coming. Yeah. You might not expect it, but it's coming whether you like it or not. Yeah. The fragility of life can be quite yeah. striking. Yeah. Tori, I, I need help. I need some resources. Every episode on Skeleton <laughs> Keys, we not only offer a skeleton from our closet, but we offer a resource that's been helpful to us in the, the topic that we're talking about. And Tori, tell me you've got something to help me work this through? I do. I have Michael Kerrigan's The History of Death, which is a great book that talks about how death is expressed through so many different cultures. And it was also an example of how even my own family was afraid of death. Because when I told them I had the book in my apartment, they were like, oh, well, you need to sage. Mm. Mm. <laughs> like, you need to put Florida water mm. out just because you don't want to invite death into your home. Mm. It's a great book. I don't think you're inviting death into your home if you read it. <laughs> just a book. Um, but it's been really helpful in kind of understanding how death has been perceived and how death is interpreted throughout history. Yeah. What about you? You know, I brought another twofer. Uh, I brought a Ooh. double dose here for my uh, skeleton yeah. key. One from uh, <laughs> pop culture and one from literature. HBO did a show a number of years ago called Six Feet Under. And it's one of my favorite television shows of all time. And it's about a family that owns a small business funeral home. 
And every episode of the show starts with the death of someone. And then each show is not only about the family, but also about the family and friends of the person that died kind of reconciling or dealing with that that death because they're going to have a funeral in these people's funeral home. I can't believe that a show about death taught me so much about life, but it did. Mm. And that show has always played a special role in my life. I have always felt very connected to the characters on that show. And if you've never taken the time to watch it, I highly recommend. It's available on HBO Max now, uh, Six Feet Under. It's a tremendous show from Alan Ball, who is the creator that created the show True Blood, actually, if you liked that show. But I also want to recommend a book that was, was really a curious book that one of my professors in my graduate program recommended to me when we were studying the mythology of death. And it's a book called The Work of the Dead, A Cultural History of Mortal Remains. And it's a book by Thomas W. Lacker. And The Work of the Dead is really a book that looks at what we do with bodies when they Mm. pass away, when they die. And and I feel like it's a really relevant book because in, in recent years, people have begun to recognize that, you know, the the old tradition of burying people and putting a tombstone and, and having people in a cemetery, that is not infinitely sustainable. We can't do that forever or we'll fill up the whole earth in a few million years. Only got so much earth, Yeah, guys. exactly. So, you know, people certainly have realized that and begin to, you know, make other plans, you know, for for their, their burial and their death. And, you know, cremation has become very uh, popular. But they're also now, just recently, in three different states, loosened restrictions for eco-friendly burials and burials that uh, allow people to have a quote-unquote more natural return to the earth. And I think this is fascinating. This is something I think that is really interesting because it ties together our biology, our psychology, and our mythology. It it ties these Mm -hmm. together in this really unique uh, way. And so I, I really recommend this book, The Work of the Dead, A Cultural History of Mortal Remains by Thomas W. Lacker. What were some of the eco-friendly ways of dealing with the body? Yeah, so <laughs> there, there's a couple. One is a method where, think of a way to say this where it's not super disturbing to some listeners, but <laughs> but for some, it's, it's the idea of returning a body. It almost would look like a, a mass grave where, where bodies are put in with other bodies, but they're not. Part of the interesting, the interest in a eco-friendly funeral is the chemicals that are put through the body as part of the embalming process. They, they're very destructive, actually, to the earth and to the environment. And so if you don't embalm the body, people obviously begin to decay rather quickly. And so allowing the natural uh, decay of the body actually returns a lot of nutrients to the soil and to the earth. And mm-hmm. so there are places around the United States that, you know, they, they're buildings you can go to where they will put a plaque on the wall and the body of your person is put on the soil and allowed just to naturally decompose inside this facility and return, you know, the earth. Now to see this, it may be disturbing. You know, I I don't know how much they let you see that, that. but the idea is, is to approach the return to the earth 
as a is a scientific and biological function as opposed to something that's wrapped up in the the emotions or psychology of of human beings. There are other eco-friendly options where there are certain places um, that have gotten the proper permits to take the body of a relative and to bury them yourself in the ground. Now, obviously, there are lots of different uh, legalities and things, you know, that come along with the proper internment, you know, Mm -hmm. of of human beings, because we don't want, you know, serial killers, for example, having very easy access to the disposing of bodies. But we want to allow people to honor their conscience when it comes to people's wishes, you know, for their bodies after death. There is another place that I believe is in Georgia, where they allow the people that donate their bodies to science to uh, be placed on this large plot of land in Georgia and detectives and medical examiners uh, can go and discover these bodies and see how bodies decompose into the earth. You know what that actually is? What is My that? alma mater, UT, really? the body farm. The body farm. Tell me about the body farm. I, I'll, I, I just, I don't know if it's the, the official one, but we do yeah. have one at UT Knoxville wow. where... If you went off this road, you had to go way back, obviously. Yeah. But it was just a number of bodies that, that the FBI and places would come in to, to look at and see how bodies decompose. And we just knew it was there. Yeah. Like, I think it was like, it was off campus, but not far from the campus. But yeah, yeah. it was the body farm. Wow. Yeah. This is this is how they're training invest- murder investigators to yeah. solve crimes, uh, to study the decomposition of bodies. So I, I think, you know, it's... Uh, it's a little disturbing. It's a little macabre, but it's it's also probably a really good thing. Um, yeah, it's it's probably necessary. I would want a detective yeah. to know. Yeah, for sure, know? for sure. Well, Tori, I feel like this is a, a pretty heavy episode, so maybe we could end on something light here before we go. I'm trying to think of some funny anecdote or story around death. I keep thinking about clown funerals and, uh, you know, serving cotton candy at a wake or something. I, I don't know. Nothing's coming to mind. Is there, um, is there anything you can Y'all want to hear that, why I might be a psychopath? Oh, please. Please tell us. <laughs> when I was like six, I was sitting in like the middle seat, my car seat in the back. My mom, my aunt were driving and they hit a Labrador. A Labrador like ran into the street and they hit the dog. Oh, no. And they were like, oh my God. Like Tori just saw this. And then they turned around, like, are you okay? And I was like, he shouldn't have been in the road anyway. <laughs> oh, that's so dark. <laughs> and they were like, oh my God, she's just like that. <laughs> Tori really handles death like an adult. She <laughs> It's a strong sense of animal justice. <laughs> I believe in animal justice. Mind your business, animals, and you won't die. <laughs> For the record, Tori is a huge animal lover. She has a dog named Frank that I is loved, just a wonderful pet. I love pet. dogs. I cry over animals dying all the time. Can't even go on Instagram. But when I was six, I was just ice cold. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. I didn't even care about his juice box. I was like, sorry, bro. <laughs> uh well, in case people want to uh, share their pets with us and tell us great stories about their pets, Tori, where, where can people track us down? Uh, you can get a hold of us at Skeleton Keys Podcast 
at gmail.com. If you want to shoot us an email or you can follow us on social media at Skeleton Keys Pod on Twitter and Instagram. You can also follow us personally. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Tori Yates or and that's Tori with two R's. And I'm on Twitter at John, J-O-H-N-K-B-U-C-H-E-R. And on Instagram at Telling a Better Story. Tori, we have faced down death. We did it. We did it. We (laughs) freaking did it. (laughs) We'll see you next time on Skeleton Keys. You've been listening to the Skeleton Keys podcast with Tori Yates-Orr and John Booker. A podcast that unlocks the mysteries of mythology and history in pop culture. Contact us at skeletonkeyspodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Skeleton Keys Pod. Skeleton Keys is a production of Sideshow Media Group.